Amen. To begin this morning, I want to take you into the home of the beloved siblings. I see some sibling units out here in the audience, so this will be fun. I too have a sibling. But the beloved siblings to me are Linus and Lucy. Do we have any Peanuts fans? I love these two. I relate with them so well. If you don't know anything about Linus and Lucy, Lucy's the older sister, right? And she is most often known as being bossy. But Linus is the younger brother, and he's commonly known as being annoying. If my sister was here, even though I'm the older brother, she would say, my brother is annoying, all right? She would testify to that. So here we go in this comic strip. You see Lucy bossing her brother, saying, go get me a glass of water. And then Linus replies, why should I do anything for you? You never do anything for me. And Lucy says, on your 75th birthday, I will bake you a cake. Wow. Something to look forward to, right? That's exactly what Linus says as he walks off to get her some water. Life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. I love these two. And I look at these comic strips, and a lot of times I, I, I see them from a different angle. I come at them from a spiritual angle. And when I read what, what Linus says, it's almost like he reads his Bible, right? Because he speaks the truth here, church. Life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. We know that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a true statement. Because of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, we have hope, right, church? We have something to look forward to. That's eternal life with the Lord, and this is available to everybody who would believe in Jesus Christ. What a day, glorious day, it will be when we are in the presence of our risen Lord. Would you agree? But I want to ask you this morning this question. How does Christ's resurrection impact you right here, right now? And as you're thinking about how you would answer that question, I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. And I realize some of you maybe came to church this morning, don't have a Bible, forgot your Bible, we've got your back. There's red books underneath the seat in front of you. Those are Bibles. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't even know where Matthew 28 is in the scriptures, if you find page 881, you're right where I'm at in my copy of God's Word. 881, Matthew 28. Matthew 28 takes us to arguably the most important day of all time. And to set this up, you need to understand what was taking place before this day that's recorded about in Matthew 28. Prior to this moment, what was going on in Jerusalem was the Passover. It was a week-long annual celebration. So all that's taking place. And shortly before this annual celebration, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 
We're going to Jerusalem. The Passover's coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Prior before any of that ever happened, Jesus told him it was going to happen. Doesn't sound too good, does it? But here's what sounds great. He will be raised on the third day. And so just like Jesus said, here comes that week. And on the first day of that week, Christ rode into Jerusalem, humbly sitting upon a donkey. And the people lined the streets of Jerusalem and they were laying down palm branches and they were laying down their coats and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the reason they were celebrating this so loudly is because they thought, finally, the king is going to liberate us. He's going to deliver us from Rome. He's going to set up his kingdom right here in Jerusalem, just as it was promised. Hosanna! Hosanna to the sun! Hosanna in the highest! And just five days later, the chief priests and the scribes led these same people to shout repeatedly, Let him be crucified! And Jesus, the sinless God-man, the Passover lamb of God, was crucified on the cross in order to take away the sin of the world. And for whatever reason, the followers didn't see it coming. And Jesus told them it was coming, and they still didn't see it. Most of them, from that moment of his crucifixion, they scattered in fear. But friends, as we look at Matthew 28, they had no reason to remain afraid because Christ was raised on the third day. Christ's resurrection offers you comfort when you are afraid. His resurrection offers you comfort when you're afraid. We're looking at Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. It says, now after the Sabbath, at Saturday, the Jewish day of rest and worship, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to see the tomb, went to see his burial chamber. A little bit about these two ladies. Prior to this moment, these two ladies literally saw the blood and the water pouring out from Christ's side as he was speared while hanging on the cross. They literally saw Christ die on the cross. But they didn't, like the disciples, remember his words that he'd be raised on the third day. So on this particular morning of the first day of the week, this Sunday, Christ's resurrection was not on their radar screen at all. All right? According to Mark 16, verse 1, what were they doing on this day? Going to the tomb? Well, they loved Christ. They cared for him. They were compassionately bringing spices so they could anoint his body. This was in order to minimize the stench from the decay that was taking place. Very, very significant what they were doing because the Jews did not embalm their deceased. So their actions were necessary. 
And as they're approaching the tomb, Mark tells us they were wondering, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance to the tomb? Well, verse 2, behold, there was a great, meaning a remarkably intense, a severe earthquake. And I can tell you from the usage of the words here, this was not the earth's plates shifting underneath Jerusalem. That wasn't the reason for this earthquake. It was because, verse 2, an angel, a supernatural being created by God to serve him, a messenger of the Lord, descended from heaven, came to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. And that sent a shockwave like nothing else on this earth. Nowhere do we read that the angel had to do this because Jesus was in that tomb and he was stuck saying, help, I'm stuck, help me, help, I'm stuck. What you need to understand, at that particular moment, Jesus was already gone from the tomb that day. An angel of the Lord rolled back that stone. Why? So that people, Mary and the other Mary, could see for themselves and the other disciples. And now you and I, as we look at the scriptures, that stone was rolled so that we can see that the tomb is empty. Amen? He was already gone. Verse 3 and 4, the angel's appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards... They were severely distressed, they trembled, they shook convulsively, intensely concerned that they were in grave, extreme danger. It says that they became like dead, lifeless men. When you read that word guards, please understand these weren't like those rent-a-cops that some community shops rent, you know, to secure their areas. They weren't like those type of men at all. These were seasoned veterans, battle-hardened soldiers. They were not cowards. There was hardly anything that would phase these types of men. And here, verse 4, we read, they were paralyzed with fear. They probably fell over unconscious. But in this text, you notice they were not the only ones who were afraid. So were these women. They were probably wondering, who broke the seal? Who moved the stone? Did Pilate order the body to be moved? Or did someone really come and steal Jesus' body away? And if so, are those robbers still around? Are they going to do something to us? Should we go? Should we tell the disciples? What do we do? These women were afraid. And God could have sent messengers to speak to them like the Lord spoke to his disciples and say something like, ladies, ladies, ladies. Why are you so foolish and weak in your faith? Why haven't you believed what Jesus repeatedly taught you, ladies? Jesus spoke that way to his disciples. God didn't send this angel to communicate that way to these ladies. He lovingly sent this angel to give comfort to these women who were afraid. Here's the comfort, verses 5 and 6. The angel said to the woman, the women, do not fear or be afraid. For I know that you seek and are looking for Jesus who was nailed to the cross and crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. He's raised back to life. As he said, remember how he told you? 
And then I want you, as we look at these next two verses, verses 6 and 7, pay attention to the four directives that are given. Four directives. The women were scared in this moment, wondering if they should even take a step until they heard the first two directives given to them by this angel. Come here. See the place where he lay. And the gospel writers tell us that they saw Christ's linen cloths that he was wrapped in lying there and his face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up and in a place by itself. Meaning Jesus Christ in his glorified, resurrected body, he passed right through the burial cloths. He passed right through the tomb. And you say, how? How could he do that? Well, I'll steal pastor and theologian's simple answer to that question. John MacArthur said he's God. He rearranged the molecules of his supernatural body and went right through, that's how. And they gave an invitation to these two ladies. And that invitation stands for all of us today. Come and see. If you're not sure, friends, I encourage you, examine the evidence as we go right through it together. Come and see that the tomb is empty. We see it right here in the word. And because we have an empty tomb this morning, that means forgiveness of sins, eternal life. It's available to all who believe. Something to look forward to. If you believed... I rejoice with you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And I have to ask you, what do people now see different about you now that you've believed? As they look at how you now live your life since you believe, do they see that you're walking in the newness of life, friends? Do they see you boldly taking a stand for the Lord? Do they see that you carry yourself secure in Jesus Christ now? You're not afraid to die. Why? Because you know your Savior conquered death. You're not afraid of trials. You're not afraid of people. Why? Because your Savior has overcome. Do they see that in you? Christ's resurrection offers you comfort when you're afraid. Second, it offers you joy when you're sad. Verse 7 Angel said, then go away quickly and promptly tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I have told you. So the first two imperatives were what, church? Come and see. And here's the next two imperatives. Go and tell. These last two directives that this angel gave to these women are just important to us, church, on this Easter Sunday as they were this very first Easter Sunday recorded for us in Matthew 28. Go and tell. We can't keep the resurrection news silent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have something to go and tell the world about. Christ has risen. We can't keep that to ourselves. 
And these ladies certainly did not. Verse 8, they departed, they left quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and happiness. They ran, they rushed to his disciples. So notice, these ladies went to the tomb, how? Sad. Mourning and weeping. And they departed with great joy. He's alive. Meaning there's hope. Meaning there's more to life. It's not all over. We have something to look forward to. That's how they left the tomb. So Christ's resurrection offers you, friend, joy when you're sad. It also offers you encouragement when you're obedient. You may have read in the Bible before, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And what I see with these ladies, two of the very last people to leave the cross of Christ and to accompany the body of Christ to the tomb. Those two ladies were also the first two to come to an empty tomb. That's amazing. These women will both be forever remembered to us as Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Can't wait to meet them. Can you, church? Wow. Love to hear what they experienced. What examples of faithfulness and obedience. But the other gospel writers say it wasn't just these two women. Mark said Salome was also with them. Luke said Joanna and other women. And so for all we know from the gospels is five women, at least five women were faithful and devoted and obedient to Christ through it all. Never forsook them, never fled. Obedient. And what we're reading here is that God marvelously rewarded them, encouraged them for their faithfulness and their obedience. Look at this, verse 9. Behold, look who appears to them. Jesus drew near and met them and said, greetings. Said grace to you. Wish you happiness. His words, it was significant Because in this background, Jewish women were often treated as inferiors. These women were restricted to the home. They were restricted in the temple. Their their voices were restricted. That was the culture. And Jesus, he just blew apart the culture. He did not treat women that way at all. He smashed the barriers. And he went up to these women and said, greetings. They were the first to see the resurrected Christ, rewarded for their obedience. And notice how they responded, verse 9. They came up, approached him. They took hold and gripped his feet. And Matthew is showing us very vividly with these words that Jesus has a real and living body, friends. He is not a ghost. He's not a vision. He's not a dream. A real, glorified Body And notice, they gripped his feet and they worshiped him. They proved by their actions to you and I today that Jesus is God because only the living God is to be worshiped. And that's what they did. 
They worshiped the living God, and Jesus just truly transformed their heart. These women went from sorrow to fear to joy, and all that probably resulted in worship. And so, friends, if you've never, ever bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you, do that today. Even right now where you're sitting as you're listening to this. Because only those who bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones who leave here with hope. Leave here guaranteed eternal life. A future beyond the grave. Something to look forward to. And Christ gave these women a voice. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, my disciples to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So Christ's resurrection provided these faithful and obedient women with encouragement and loved ones. He offers you and me that today as well. Fourth, Christ's resurrection offers you assurance when you're doubting. We continue on verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard, a group of soldiers went into the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. Told them the truth. The seals broke, the stones rolled back, the body's gone. The guard with this news was basically putting a bullseye on themselves because this meant they all are now guilty and should be executed. They had one job. But notice who they reported to. It wasn't their superior pilot, verse 11. They went to the Jewish chief priests. And sadly, together, they attempted this cover-up to the truth that Christ has risen they fabricated a false conspiracy theory. Verse 12, when they had assembled and come together in one place with the elders, they talked things over, taking counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. The same people who gave a chunk of change to Judas to do what? Betray Christ. Here they give the soldiers a relatively large and considerable amount of money to lie about Christ. The soldiers knew the truth. They knew Christ has risen, and they had to be bribed to lie. Verse 13 through 15, they were told, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away, secretly without permission. And while we were asleep, and if this comes to Pontius Pilate, the governor's ears, if he learns or hears about it, we'll satisfy him, we'll convince, persuade him to believe us and act on what we tell him, keep you out of trouble, keep you free from worry and care. So they received and took the money and did as they were directed and instructed. I don't know about you, but when I read verses 13 through 15, just a series of questions start popping up in my mind. I've got a whole bunch of questions with this plan. Number one, if they were asleep, how would they have known the disciples came and stole Christ's body away? And if sleeping on the job meant execution by sword, why at all would they want to go around and say, hey, we were sleeping on the job? Why would they agree to those new orders knowing it's going to take the sword to put them out of commission now? 
Third, how could the disciples have broken the seal and rolled the stone back and removed the decaying body without waking up one guard? I went for a bike ride yesterday. It was a gorgeous day. And as I was pedaling along the road, Gary Avenue, there was a dead opossum on the side of the road, guts all over the place. You could smell it, what seemed to me a mile away. And as I got up and passed it, I was like, you know, I was making all kinds of noises. When I get around something that stinks, I react. Okay? I'm imagining if you get around a body that's decayed three days, no embalming, how do you lift that body and get it out of there quietly without gagging or any of those things? You know what I'm saying? Fourth, do you really believe the disciples who had just forsook Christ and fled now came together to carry out an impossible mission that would have gotten them killed? Really? Fifth, Joseph of Arimathea, as we looked last week, was rich, gave Jesus a royal burial. So why would the disciples who were poor would have wanted to take Christ and bury him in a less desirable location? Why would they even want to do that? Six, this is an obvious question. Where was Christ's body? Okay, you're telling us the story. Okay, well, where is it? So we can go see. And then last, why would his disciples all die martyrs' deaths except for John who was imprisoned and died? Why would they all die a martyr's death for someone they knew was not alive? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that just roll in my mind when I look at these verses 13 through 15 about their plan. But I want you to understand, when Matthew recorded these words, these were recorded 35 years after Christ had risen from the dead. 35 years later is when he penned these words. And notice at the end of verse 15, 35 years even after Easter Sunday, the very first Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection. That story, that fabricated lie, Matthew says, had been widely spread by word of mouth among the Jews to this day. That was 35 years after his resurrection. They were still spreading that lie. And you know what? They're still doing it today. We know the truth. We see it right here in the word of God. The 11 disciples, says verses 16 and 17, went to Galilee to the mountains to which Jesus had directed and commanded them. And when they saw him, they bowed down and worshiped him, but some doubted. I got to add some of the other gospel writers in here to this moment so we understand these words carefully. John in chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, tells us that Christ appeared to 10 of his disciples on the very day he arose. 10 of them. Thomas was not there. Thomas was doubtful, the Bible tells us. Thomas said to the other disciples who had seen the risen Lord, he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, Jesus gave doubting Thomas assurance. How? By putting his finger into the nail holes and his side into the pierced side, and Jesus said, don't disbelieve, but believe. And I love how Thomas responds, my Lord 
and my God. So sometime later, he appeared to the 11 disciples, verse 17, Matthew 28. In Galilee, and there's many Bible scholars that believe there's more than 500 brothers that joined them at this moment. And some of them are the ones who doubted. So as we look at all these gospel accounts of Jesus Christ together, we discover Christ had already revealed himself to his disciples, the 11 disciples, a couple times. They weren't doubting Christ's resurrection. Two of the previous appearances that the Lord showed up to his disciples, they were miraculous, like went through doors, all that stuff. Just, wow, (laughs) there he is. This particular appearance that we're reading about in verse 17 at this mountain, it was different, which caused some of them to lack certainty because they were thinking there would be another miraculous appearance and it was just a normal one. He walks up and so they're kind of like, okay, is this him? It looks like him, but is it really him? They lack certainty until he spoke. And look what he said to them. He came and said to him in verse 18, all ruling authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They didn't doubt anymore. Yep, that's him. Only one person can say that. And the living Savior truly transformed these disciples, friends. From cowards to courageous men of God. And he does the same thing today for all who truly believe. Christ's resurrection offers you assurance when you're doubting. And lastly, it offers you purpose when you're serving. Verse 19 and 20 are some key verses for the church in our scriptures. Christ says to us, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all people, groups, and nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to continue to obey all that I've directed and commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the consummation and end of the age. And we look at this in our English Bibles and we say, okay, I see two imperatives here. And we say go is an imperative and make disciples is an imperative, but actually in the original language, Greek, there's only one imperative And the imperative is for the church to make disciples. That's our purpose. A disciple was what the early church called themselves. Because it powerfully articulated it. Everyone that heard themselves identifying to, I am Christ's disciple. It meant I'm an apprentice of the Lord Jesus Christ. I identify myself with him. I'm consumed with him. He's my teacher. He lives in me. I love him. I follow him all the days of my life. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you can see, Christ has commissioned all of us. He's commanded each of us as his church to make disciples, to be disciples, friends. This is your purpose. This is my purpose. This is why we exist as a church, to make disciples. And at faith, we would define disciple this way. Anyone professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, baptized by immersion after salvation, giving evidence of a change of heart by faithfully exalting God through the offering of worship in spirit and truth, 
fully equipped through the preaching and teaching of the whole word of God to evangelize our community and the world. That's what we would define as a disciple. And Christians, the pattern we've seen in the word this morning is the moment that you personally came to the word and saw that the tomb is empty and you believed in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in full for them. He was buried, but he's risen from the dead on the third day. The moment you came to the word, you saw that good news, you believed in your heart, that's the moment you became a disciple, a servant of the Lord. And you're now to go and to tell others how to become disciples, how to become followers of Christ. We must, as Jesus commissions us, proclaim the good news to people of all nations. What do we proclaim to them, Pastor? Verse 6. He is not here. Repeat it. He has risen. That's what we tell them. That's what we go and tell them. Why? Because without Christ's resurrection, friends, no one has hope. No one has anything to look forward to. No one is guaranteed a future inheritance. That's the good news, and we got to go and tell that good news. Don't keep this truth to yourself. Share it with everybody in your circle of influence. Every single one. And if you say, well, I'm afraid. I'll get choked up. I'm not motivated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, look at the resurrection and let it impact your life. And remember what Jesus said to you. He'll give you all the power you need to go and be his witnesses. He wants to use you, friend. He wants to use his church to get this good news out. And it's imperative more so today than ever before because we're living in a world that continues to fill with lies and deception. And I just presented the truth. The word of God tells us that Christ has risen. And if you're skeptical, I just urge you to continue to keep reading the Bible, studying the word of God. Look at the evidence that he's given you in his word. Look at it with an open heart. And when the light bulb goes off, when the spirit of God illuminates your mind so that you see it, I urge you in that moment to believe. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. He is alive. And you can look in the word and you can see an open invitation given to you directly from Christ himself, friend. The living Lord inviting you right now this morning as you're listening to come to him. And look what he promises you when you come to him. He says he'll give you rest. So take his yoke upon you. Learn from him right here in his word. You'll find him to be gentle and lowly in heart. 
you'll find rest for your souls. His yoke's easy, his burden is light. Come to him, friend. I urge you, come to him, because until you come to Christ, your life will remain unchanged. Jesus wants you to come to his word this morning. He wants you, as you look at his word, see the awfulness of your sin, but he also wants you to see his amazing love for you. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wants you to come to his word and see that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, verse 6, Matthew 28, meaning Jesus Christ has conquered sin for you. He's conquered death for you. He's conquered Satan for you. And Jesus promises that he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. And when you come and you believe, he promises you that you will one day rise and be glorified just like him. And you'll spend eternity with him. And when I think about that, that is something to look forward to and that's what makes life a whole lot more pleasant and easy. So I pray today, friend, that today is the day where you become a part of God's family. And if you need help with that, I'll be here all day. You come talk to me, all right? There's nothing more I'd love to do on Easter Sunday than help you see the truth and come to know Jesus as your Savior. For those of you who know Christ, who are part of God's family, please understand he wants you to fulfill your purpose. He wants you to make disciples. He wants you to do that in your home. He wants you to do that in your neighborhood at your workplace, in your schools, with your friends, in your community. He wants you to do that wherever he places you on any given day. So loved ones, I hope this morning that you fully grasp from Jesus' words himself that your purpose, the greatest purpose you have for your life It's to fulfill the commission that Jesus gave you to make disciples. Our Savior is a living Lord of all. Let's go serve him. Let's go make disciples. Let's let his resurrection comfort us, give us joy, give us encouragement, give us assurance, and most of all, give us purpose for the glory of God alone. And all his people say, Father, thank you so much for this good news. Thank you that this news changes lives. My life's been changed. I know number of brothers and sisters in Christ here whose lives have been forever impacted because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that today more lives would be changed and impacted based on what they've come to the word and seen in the scriptures. And I pray that they would truly believe and then go and tell others. And for those of us who have believed, I pray we would take seriously the commission. It's too easy for us to just live comfortable and just live an easy life and just wait for that day that we look forward to. But help us to know that there's work to be done until that day. We need to prove ourselves to be faithful and obedient. And I pray you would 
motivate us and move us to go and tell that Christ has risen. Help us not be silent, God. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.